bringing you stories of freedom, responsibility, and personal potential. This is the Success Journeys Podcast, and here's your host, Katie Napoleon Hill. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Success Journeys Podcast. In each episode, I interview incredible guests who share their own personal journey to success. They share their highs and their lows, their joy and their pain, and the true underlying story of what it took to get to where they are today. Today on the Success Journeys podcast, we're talking with Jim Britt. Jim is the author of numerous best-selling books and programs. Some of his many titles include Rings of Truth, the Do This series, Your Authentic Power, The Power of Letting Go, and Cracking the Rich Code. He is an internationally recognized business leader who is highly sought after as a keynote speaker. Jim was recently named as one of the top 20 living success coaches and presented with the Best of the Best award out of the top 100 contributors of all time to the direct selling industry. As a coach and trainer, Jim leverages his skills and experience as one of the leading experts in peak performance, entrepreneurship, and personal empowerment to produce stellar results. Jim's formal education stopped before graduating from high school. His career training began in a gas station earning a dollar per hour and then on a factory floor making a dollar sixty-seven per hour. His first attempt at entrepreneurial success, which he started, was at rock bottom with nine dollars in the bank and a loan of four thousand pounds. A year later, he lost it all. Home, vehicles, furniture, everything. But after that first year, and a lot of tenacity, the tables turned, and shortly thereafter, he made his first million. Over the years, Jim's built a fortune worth millions of dollars, with multiple streams of passive income from various business models. He's also studied human behavior and what really motivates us to take action and achieve great things. Today, he puts his efforts into teaching what he's learned over the years to help others achieve extraordinary success. Jim's background spans all levels of experience and research. He's been business partners with many of today's great mentors, such as Dr. Dennis Waitley's Psychology of Winning, Jim Rohn's Adventures in Achievement, and Dr. Maxwell Maltz's Psycho-Cybernetics International. He's also mentored several of today's top-name motivational speakers, including being the man who gave a young Anthony Robbins his first real job, and mentored him for the next five years. Jim has worked with more than 300 corporations around the world as a performance educator and success coach, helping executives and their employees improve performance, access their true potential, and live their lives filled with personal and professional advancement. Today, he presents seminars on personal achievement, entrepreneurship, small business success strategies, network marketing, leadership, and all aspects of peak performance and personal fulfillment. To date, he's addressed thousands of audiences around the world, totaling well over a million people from all walks of life. And I am truly honored and privileged to have him join us on the show today. Hello, Jim. How are you? Good, Katie. Thank you for having me. It's, a, it's all our pleasure, and uh, I have so many questions which I'd like to ask you in order to help all our listeners out there, and I know you have a lot of um, background in, uh, in a lot of things, so let's get cracking. Um, my, my first question um, is, where, where did your desire to help people emanate from, and have you always been entrepreneurial, even as a child? Uh, well... I don't know what triggered my desire to help people. I, I've always been, I think, helpful even as a child. And, you know, as far as entrepreneurship, uh, my dad was probably one of the best entrepreneurs I, I know of, uh, although he says he wasn't. Uh, but I remember one time that we were coming back from fishing and we pulled up to a gas station to fill the tank and uh, he goes inside and He's in there for like 20 minutes, and I'm thinking there must be something wrong. So I go inside, and, and I hear my dad talking way back in the back uh, in the storage room and to the owner of the gas station. And and I walk back there, and and turns out my dad had negotiated to buy 200 
over 200 radios. And it was the, the old types of radios, you know, like with tubes and things in them, you know. And, uh, and he paid 10 cents each for them. So he didn't pay much money for all of them. Uh-huh. It was a couple, a couple of truckloads getting them all home. And then he, he took all of them and kind of blended them together and came out with about 25 to 50 uh, radios that worked really well that he sold for a few dollars each. So he tripled his money and mm-hmm. had a lot of fun doing it. So, but he was always like that. He could just he, – he would look at things and buy things and fix them and sell them. And, and part of it was, you know, we were, we were very poor and – and it was his way of making extra money and supporting the family, basically. So I think I picked it up from him, even though I uh, I didn't think about it at the time. But, you know, in my early teens, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, uh, I mowed lawns, uh, had, a, had a paper route and mowed lawns at the same time. So I would go around the neighborhood and knock on doors and say, would you like to have your lawn mowed? And I had... I had customers that I'd go back, uh, you know, every week or two and mow their lawns during the summertime. And then I had a paper route that I got up at four o'clock in the morning and delivered papers. So Mm -hmm. I guess I've kind of always been an entrepreneur in a way. That's quite amazing because... I guess when when we when we're really pushed and we don't have a choice, we we do we we do everything we can in order to, to to get to our goal. And in your case, it sounded like your family were really struggling, so therefore they they pushed to the limit, and um, you succeeded. And it actually reminds me of the fact that there's there's a seed of benefit in every adversity, and. Your, your adversity seemed to make you an entrepreneur at such a young age, which actually is, is a great benefit. Well, you know, really, my first job was picking cotton. And mm-hmm. the whole family picked cotton to earn money for the family, basically. And I started when I was six years old. And we would go out every the fall of the year when the cotton was ready to pick. And um, we'd spend the next or every weekend while, while it was the season and then uh, the school actually let out for about a week. Uh, they called it cotton picking season. And, <laughs> and I grew up in Oklahoma. And, and that's what we did, you know. And, and I, I picked cotton on all the way up until I was probably, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old um, every, every fall of the year. Wow. And, and it didn't make a lot of money. Picking cotton, you got paid two cents a pound. Mm-hmm. And cotton doesn't weigh very much. So you didn't, you didn't, mm-hmm. you didn't make a lot of money. No, and um, I, I know from personal experience, actually, my, my mother grew up, um, my late mother, on a kibbutz, and cot- picking cotton is, is quite challenging. It hurts your fingers. Hurts your fingers, hurts your back, mm-hmm. uh, hurts your pride. <laughs> mm, absolutely. <laughs> it, was, it was hard work and, you know, dusty. And, you know, I, as I was doing it, I kind of I hated it. But now, when I look back on it, it taught me a work ethic mm. that uh, most people don't have. You know, I, I, I worked hard. And it also taught me that working hard doesn't necessarily get you ahead in life. Mm-hmm. Working hard for your money or making your money work hard for you comes exactly. to mind. Um, what's, what's interesting is that um, you, you ended up speaking for a living. And um, th- that, that's a complete shift from the manual work. W- were you always good at it? As you are now. <laughs> that's uh, that's that's kind of interesting because f- speaking was my my greatest fear. Mm. Um, and you know, when I was in high school, uh, the two years I went to high school, um, when a, a teacher would ask a question of the of the class, and even if I knew the answer, I was afraid to raise my hand because I was afraid that I might get it wrong, and then everybody in the class would. Uh, would think I was dumb or stupid or or would laugh at me or something like that. So I just would never raise my hand and never answer the questions. And, and you know, I'd invi- I've been invited to get up in front of groups a couple of times and uh, terrified me. I just wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So it, it took me a while before, before I was, well, I was kind of coerced into speaking my first time. Uh, I was promoting seminars. I joined up in business with Jim Rohn. And my job was to promote the events, and and then he was going to do the events and, and speak. So I had hired a bunch of salespeople, and, and they were out making presentations to small groups. And yet I had never gone out to make a presentation. I was teaching them how to do it, but I'd never done one. <laughs> and they were doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, but one, one fella 
kept trying to get me to go out and, and speak for him, to show him how to do it. And I would always kind of lie to him and tell him my calendar was full. Mm-hmm. And and one day he said, hey, what are you doing on August 22nd? And I said, I don't know. And I looked at my calendar and I said, nothing that I can see. He said, great, put me down. I want you to speak for me at this group. <laughs> And, and it was two months in, in advance, and uh, it scared me to death. I mean, it's all I could think about for two months was, what am I going to do? How am I going to speak to this group? I don't know. If, you know, it just it terrified me. Mm-hmm. And and I um, I remember going that morning, and I had I must have had fifty pages of notes. Uh, I was only going to speak for twenty minutes. And I thought I'd be in a, a meeting room with a podium and you know some place to lay my notes and you know all of that. And it wasn't that way at all. I walked into this office, and there were people scattered all over the office. I'm standing up in front of, of the office um, making my presentation. No place to put my notes. They're all kind of tucked in my arm. I couldn't even look at them <laughs> without being too obvious. And um, so I talked for 20 minutes, and and it really it terrified me. And when, mm. I, when I left there, I said to myself, never again. Wow. And I stood by the car for a while, and I said, well, you got one of two choices, never do it again or do it often until you get better at it. And so I made the latter choice and decided to do it often. And I went back and at that point I had close to 300 salespeople uh, throughout the West Coast of, uh, of the U.S. And um, I put the word out to all of them that if they had a, a speaking engagement for me, that I would speak up to three, ti- three times a day wow. um, for 50 people or more which I did for the next five years. Uh, and I, I averaged three a day. Some days I did five and six presentations. And, and it wasn't until I was in front of probably several hundred thousand people before I lost my fear. Wow. I mean, it wasn't obvious that, to, the, to the crowd, I don't think anyway, that, that I was afraid, but I was certainly afraid. Uh, but mm-hmm. I remember the day that it all went away. That's amazing. I love the fact that you said you remember the day that it all went away. Just not to dwell on it, what's interesting is what what happened? Did anything happen to make you so afraid of speaking in public? Well, you know, I'd gone through some transitions and and the the material that I was speaking about kind of changed and I and I had a a deeper level of confidence of what I was teaching. And and I remember walking into um, uh, the meeting where I was speaking, there was about 400 people in uh, Park City, Utah, and almost almost every other speaking engagement I'd done, I had this you know this butterfly feeling in my stomach, this fear, and I walked in the back of the room, and all I could think of was let me at them. Mm, and wow. So there's no the fear wasn't there. I just said I'm ready to I'm ready to go. You know because I just felt like now nah, nobody can a- ask me a question I can't answer about what I'm speaking about. Where before I didn't have total confidence if somebody challenged me, and that, I think that's mm. what what did it is that I was so confident about what I was speaking about that um, it gave me confidence to get up and and um, and speak without mm-hmm. the fear. What's interesting is who taught you that if you kept practicing, kept on at it, that eventually you'll get better at it? So who taught me? Yeah. Did you have a, a mentor, somebody that taught you that as long as even if you have a skill that you are not proficient at, that if you keep on at it, you will get better? It might sound obvious in hindsight. Mm-hmm. However, when you're in a situation and you have fear within your head, it, it, it might not be ov- obvious. Well, uh, I never really thought about the fact that um, Jim Rohn taught me. Uh, we were just in business together, and I never thought about the fact that he was my mentor. But looking mm. back, certainly uh, he was, and he was way ahead of where I was in the speaking field. And um, and I remember asking Jim, I said, "How do you how do you design a, a talk?" I said, "I want to I want to design an hour long talk." Mm-hmm. And so I want to go out and do keynotes like you do. And he said, well, what are you passionate about? Well, he first said, tell me your story. And mm-hmm. so I told him a little bit about me, and and it was about two minutes long. And he said, okay, tell me what you're passionate about, what subjects. And I picked goal setting, personal development, and attitude, those three things. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, what you do is go study those and and 
develop your own material, but study goals and attitude and personal development. And then you can, you know, expand what you, what you talk about. And he said that, but the key to being a good speaker, he said, become a gatherer of stories. Mm. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, he said, gather stories because people, people don't remember necessarily what you say, but they'll remember the story that relates to what you say. So he said, if you if you make a point, tell a story, or tell a story, then make a point, and and I didn't really get it then either. But he says you can find stories anywhere, you know, mm-hmm. from the taxi ride from the airport to the hotel, or uh, you know, your kids, and you know, there's stories everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, you can read stories in the newspaper, wherever you want to, you know, pick up stories that are current and and people, uh, stories that are impactful, stories about your own life. Mm-hmm. And so today I'm kind of known as the storyteller. <laughs> so, Absolutely. You know, yes. I do a seminar. I, I, I always blend a lot of stories. In fact, I just finished a book that it's uh, of what I've learned from my six sons. And, um, and it's a, a whole book full of stories, uh, pretty much, of, of what, I, what I've gained from having those sons. You know? So mm-hmm. it's, uh, that's, you know, that was probably my, my main mentor even though Jim didn't actually coach me, he, but uh, but I looked up to him and and learned a lot from from his style and what he did. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really interesting. And you you're absolutely a storyteller. I was uh, I stayed up all night the other day finishing off the Rings of Truth, and uh, that's uh, wonderful. It's not only a story. I have to say that there are very few stories that have real messages in it, and. You placed so many messages within this book, The Rings of Truth, that it, it, it was both spiritual, both healing, emotional. It, it, was, it was like an explosion um, is the only way that I can describe it. And for me, it really connected with me. And I'm sure if our listeners read it as well, because it, it helps you through a lot of challenges in life. And you're a great storyteller. This is essentially, um, it, it, it's both, it, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's sort of an, on a fictional basis, however, based on your own life story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's based on my life story. There's two fictional characters in the book. Uh, a couple of three of the locations were changed uh, just to kind of shorten the story. Otherwise, it would have been 1,500 pages long instead mm-hmm. of 300 and something. So, um, but it was my my life story basically, and I I wove I woven in a fictional character to um, to kind of facilitate the reader through the process. And my goal when when I wrote that was to to have something impactful on every page. Mm-hmm. Uh, for and it may not be impactful for every person, but yet it has the potential to be, and and as a result, uh, you know, it, most people can't escape that book when they read it. They it it's got some of their life in it someplace, and uh, really, it, it came out much better than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. It was my first book, so and I never thought I could write. I actually had to hire somebody to help me, and and mm-hmm. we put it together, and it's uh, it was just came out fabulous. It's it's amazing, and um, also um, I'm I'm not sure if uh, it was I was reading one of the things that caught me. You mentioned we are not our ego. Now, uh, without reading reading it, um, naturally our, our listeners won't understand what I'm talking about. Could you expand on that a little bit? In well, our our ego basically is uh, kind of the sum total of all of our programming that we have, and that that's not the real you um, that's that's the glossed over version of the real you um, some of it is valuable programming that, we, that we've picked up but some of it is programming that's that's been there or been developed over our lifetime and when you when you go to make a decision to do something the first thing you do is you check in with your with your programming you don't know you're doing that mm-hmm. or you check in with your ego you know which is all of your programming and and you try to you try to find things. The mind helps you to extract the things that that relate to what you're the decision you're making or what you're thinking about. So if you if you decide you're going to go go swimming uh, in the lake, you know your your mind is is going to pull out all of your experiences from swimming in the lake. 
you know, the time I got bit by a snake when I skipped school and went swimming in the lake and I got mm-hmm. bit in the back by a snake. So that's going to, it's going to pull all of that out, you know, mm-hmm. say, wait a minute, do you sure you want to swim in this lake? There may be snakes there, you know, and, and it, it all happens in an instant. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not, it's not you, it's just experiences that you've had. But most people, there's so, some of these experiences have been so strong and such an influence on your life or repeated experiences that's, that shaped your life that you believe it's you and it's really not you. And we most often live our lives based on those old experiences instead of really understanding how to, how to view it from uh, a current point of view instead of looking at your life through those rose-colored glasses and those old programming. Mm-hmm. That's uh, really fascinating. And you, also, you have an exercise um, of letting go, which really turned my life around, which I discovered in your book, Unleashing Your Authentic Power. <coughs> How did you come about this powerful technique, and and could you share it with our listeners? Well, uh, a lot of it happened over time. Um, the uh, The process, basically, what I discovered was is the fact that these programs are not really you. It's not mm-hmm. us. You know, it's something that we believe is true, and and you can let's say you have a problem. Um, earning money and you you keep hitting blocks and you can't quite get past that that mental block of earning money um, you can you can be aware that you have a problem uh, you could be aware that you have a bad attitude you can be aware that that you're depressed you can be aware of, of, of all of these things but being aware of it doesn't do anything all it does is saying I'm depressed well that doesn't help anything Mm-hmm. But what I discovered was when you stop and observe yourself in that situation, observe what you're feeling when you hit that money block or observe what you're feeling when you feel depressed, instead of saying, I'm depressed, back, back away from that and observe yourself and ask yourself, do I like feeling this way? And, and instantly you start feeling differently because mm-hmm. you've separated yourself from uh, that those old programs that's causing that. So. Um, so the next question, that's the first question. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next question is, do you like feeling that way? And again, you have to check in with those feelings and you're looking for those feelings and, and some of them come up, you know, you can feel them coming up mm-hmm. and, and you, you say to yourself, no, I don't like feeling this way. And then you go to the next question. Uh, do you want to let it go? And now you're, consciously you're making a choice is this is this working for me um is there any reason that isn't painful or harmful to me to keep hanging on to this do i want to let it go and most people will say yes i do want to let it go and then the next question is are you willing to let it go because that's a critical uh entry point here a critical question Mm -hmm. Uh, are you willing to and and what I tell my, my, my students in my events is that, you know, when I get to are you willing to, be sure that you're willing to not ever use that as an excuse for not having what you want in your life ever again. And that stops people a lot of times. Mm-hmm. They're going, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm willing to because now I can no longer use being upset as a reason for not doing well in life. Right. Or no, no longer use the fact that I had a, a bad breakup in a relationship for never having another good relationship. Mm-hmm. So you have to be willing to let it go. And once that person says, yes, I'm willing to let this go. You see, all of this, you're, you're, again, you're separated from yourself and you're, you're watching yourself go through this. Right. And then the, the last step is, if you're willing to, uh, the last step and last question is when. And... And then I, I use a breath a lot and I have various processes that I, that I do to help people let go. But, you know, breathing is a, is, is a letting go process. Uh, for example, if you're late for an appointment, you're rushing down the freeway and you're, you're rushing to get to and you're looking at your, your time and, and you're thinking you're going to be late. And you're getting all anxious and finally you get to your destination. You reach for the door to open the, open the door and you look at your watch and, and you, you see that you're right on time and you go, mm-hmm. I made it. And that's, yeah. that's letting go. You built mm-hmm. up all that anxiety and then you, you just let it go. And, and everybody can relate to that because we've all done it. Mm-hmm. Well, 
it's the same thing with what we built up over time. It's just it's trapped energy that's that's been dormant, laying there, waiting for us to let it go or 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 um, look at it and see if this uh, if if this any longer serves us. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think that's the the key thing. Whether it's serving us, and and having experienced it. I'm sure when our listeners out there um, buy your books or your courses or, or or even attend a seminar, there's a real relief. Although the tangible results for me personally, I had been uh, for over 20 years. I I, I can say I had not been in touch with my father. Um, I'd I'd run away from home as a teenager to do better for myself. I went to gain a scholarship at a prestigious boarding school. And for 20 years, um, after having run away from home and also having lost my mother to cancer when I was very young, I'd, I'd never really dealt with it. And I think the letting go exercise not only helped me mentally, it also helped me with with, with my health. I, I'd, I'd had a major operation of a tumor and all these things that had built up. And yet after the letting go exercise, I can, I, I can say I'm 110% fit and I'm not, I'm not being paid <laughs> to say this in any way. <laughs> this is the first time I've spoken to, to Jim and, and I'm on no medication. I felt, I, I felt physically like something shifted out, out, out of me. It sounds strange. And, um, I felt free and, at the time, I wondered, what is this? Is this some kind of magic? And then I came across your your, your books and your teaching, and and it all explained it in in a way that that made sense. If you if you if you put a whole load of um, stones or, or bricks on you, you're gonna naturally feel heavy, right? So exactly. when <laughs> when you lift them off, you 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 feel better, and and that's that's my analogy. Um, uh, I think yeah you just uh, you know you look at it like um, let's say you've had repeated experiences over a lifetime that that with relationships and with parents that put you down or something mm-hmm. like that so you you have this feeling that nobody loves me you'll never be good enough you know so so if you look at that kind of like it's it's a it's a ball of energy trapped inside mm-hmm. you and can it cause health issues absolutely yeah uh, because your cells, uh, listen to you, and they obey you. Mm-hmm. They tell you that they do exactly what you tell them. They will die for you right. if you tell them to. So if you're if you're all depressed and down and feeling sorry for yourself all the time, you, you're carrying that energy around and you're telling your cells uh, to not live up to what they should be living up to. Right. And and we die die too soon sometimes because of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think if we can learn to to, to be our true selves. Um, and, and and be free of previous conditioning, then when it we not only be healthier, we we also can can help other people, which is what you do. Um, and it's interesting. I, I noticed that you, firstly, you you used to do something with maximal malts um, yes. a very long time ago. What, what is it exactly that you you did? Well, <clears throat> it's interesting. Uh, when I was twenty two years old. Um, Someone gave me the book uh, Psycho-Cybernetics, mm-hmm. Dr. Maxwell Maltz, and it was written back in uh, 1959 or 57, I can't remember. Um, and I'd never read a self-help book before. And so I opened it up and started reading it, and I read – I was standing in my kitchen, I read about you know three or four pages, and I went, eh, this is a bunch of garbage, and I threw it mm-hmm. in the trash. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and t- ten years later – uh, I was president of Dr. Maxwell Malt Psychocybernetics, <laughs> and I and I read the book thirty times in thirty days. And I wanted to, I was a speed reader, so I could read it pretty fast. And I read it every day, and I wanted to get to know uh, Dr. Maltz and uh, all of what he did. And I wanted to understand what was in that book on self-image psychology, and and how you know how your self-image affects yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, which gave me a lot of foundation for some of the things I do uh, do today, even though it's a different approach than what he had, but uh, but similar. Um, and uh, then I, ta- I taught uh, a class on psychocybernetics for a while, and then I taught other trainers to teach a two-day class on psychocybernetics. Mm-hmm. Um, so myself and another fellow owned the seminar rights to psychocybernetics and Think and Grow Rich. Mm. And... Um, 
and so we were we were doing seminars on on those for a while, and then we ultimately sold the rights uh, to someone else uh, later later on. Right. Okay. The reason I ask is because. Uh, I'm not a, a scientist. However, what Maxwell Maltz, from what I understand, taught is that it, it, many people um, came to have surgery in order to feel better. And correct me if I'm wrong. And the, he noticed that even though after they had surgery, they 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 didn't their self image didn't didn't change. And the reason I point this is I was thinking about this yesterday. It just occurred to me, my mother, my late mother, was an identical twin. Now, the, both twins were beautiful, redheads, and one twin, as a child, got teased about her nose. Somebody made a comment at school that said to her that she had a funny nose. Now, bear in mind that they're both identical, both beautiful. My mother was always, always, always had a self-image that she was pretty, that, you know, she, she, she didn't have any issues with the way she looked. And yet one twin thought she was ugly and the other twin thought that she, that she was fine. How, how do you explain that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what Dr. Maltz was uh, getting across was, uh, <clears throat> you know, how you see yourself is how is the life you're going to create for yourself. Mm. And, with, you know, if you he performed a lot of uh, uh, cosmetic surgery and that was his main profession. And he started to notice that, you know, people would come in for cosmetic surgery and they'd have a bad self-image. And, mm -hmm. and after they had the surgery, they still had the bad self-image. So right. it was really all about in, it, what was going on inside versus what was going on outside. So, mm -hmm. you know, one person looks at themselves and thinks that they're fat. And the next person looks at themselves and thinks that they're just, they're just about perfect, you know. So, mm -hmm. And then some people look at themselves and even the, the anorexia you know, they they start to, uh, you know, they continue to lose weight and continue to not eat because mm -hmm. they see themselves as fat. Right. And, and yet they're down to, you know, skin and bone almost. So it's all what's going on inside. Yeah. So what there's, what's actually in front of the mirror is not what's the, the reality. In, in your books, Jim, you talk about getting to a state of resourcefulness, which you say is the key to avoiding blocks and inner turmoil. Mm -hmm. Why is resourcefulness Important. How, how can people get to a state of resourcefulness? Well, uh, resourceful. If you if you look at the word resourceful, and it came about, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and um, and he said, "What do you think the word resourceful means?" And uh, mm -hmm. I said, "I, I don't know. So using your imagination, being productive. Uh, you know, we came up with five or six things." He said, "Just an interesting word." And I can't, went home that night, and I I was still thinking about it. Resourceful. And and when you break it down in the syllables, resourceful basically means once again full of source. Mm. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I looked up source in the dictionary, and Webster defined it as uh, where all things originate. All mm. things originate in source. And I'm going, wow, that's pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. And depending on what you think source is, you know, source could yeah. be God or, you know, whatever mm -hmm. you think it is. And the universe, or um, and then I kept looking for another definition of source, and I looked everywhere for probably two years. Every time I'd get near a dictionary or some uh, origin of word book or anything like that, I'd look up source. And I was in um, in England, uh, mm. little a little town uh, Chester, and I was walking down a road, and I I looked over and kind of like a little alleyway looking uh, area and, and it had a sign up there it says antique bookstore mm, yeah and I was always <laughs> intrigued by books especially old books and so I walked over and walked in and and there was this big dictionary it it must have been you know it looked like 5000 pages i mean the thing was like a foot thick and really really old and it said do not open do not touch <laughs> yeah <clears throat> But I didn't think that meant me, so <laughs> I carefully opened it because I didn't want to tear it up or anything. I carefully opened it to the S's, and I looked up source. And there was different uh, terminologies and and uh, origin of the word and all. I mean, it was quite quite in-depth, and, and I think the book must have been several hundred years old. I don't know. Mm. But I, I found one that said source, love. Right. <clears throat> And I went, wow, That's that is really powerful. Wow. Resourceful is once again full of love. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Well, once again, full of love, you know, when you, 
when you decide you're going to do something and you get excited about it, you're 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 in love with it, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. You're in in love with the goal you set mm-hmm. or something you want to do or a vacation you want to take, and you get get that tingling feeling inside. And we've all had that. Sometimes we have it just walking along in nature or watching children playing or out on the water someplace. We just have that feeling inside that everything is perfect. And and so what I realized is that everything originates in love. Everything originates in source where all things originate. So and I thought, well, wait a minute now. I've read many, many times that there's two emotions that we that we experience and it's love and fear. Mm. So I thought, how can that be if if all things originate in in love, where does fear come from? And then I thought, you know, it doesn't say that it has to be loving to originate in source. It just says that all things originate there, including fear. Right. And it's proof that the human being can create because we create our fears. They're not real. Mm. Uh, they're just something we made up in our mind about something, some future event that's going to happen or could happen. So we become fearful. Um, and so the way I look at it is when you have a fear, it's love presenting you with the fear, saying if you, if you let go of this, you can have more of me. So let go of the fear, you can have more love in your life. Wow. And so that's what resourceful is. That's very, very powerful. Um, I'm thinking about different um, things that have happened in life, and that's very true. When, when I have to say, one of my greatest fears was asking questions. And as you stated, one of your greatest fears was speaking in public. For, for me as a child, um, I was always told by my father, you should know that. Why, why are you asking the question? You shouldn't ask questions. And now I'm asking questions initially. And it's not that the... the I, I've practiced that exercise that that you taught of letting go um, quite a while ago, and 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 it, it, it did the trick. There's still bits of it that that sometimes hold that I allow to hold me back. However, what you're saying is it's very true. When when you when you let go of, of your fears, you you you're filled with love and you're able to live your purpose. Talking about purpose, how how did you find your purpose, your real true purpose in life? Well. When uh, when Jim Marone and I became uh, partners in uh, the seminar business, um, I kind of had deep inside I wanted to do something and and help people, and I wanted I wanted to present seminars even though I was afraid, uh, didn't know if I could or would, but um, so I thought you know being able to promote Jim and fill up rooms and you know put thousands of people through events that that would be helping because, mm-hmm. you know, he's quite brilliant and um, and his information was, was much needed out there. So I felt like that I had as much to do with what he was doing as as he did because without the room being full, then he's got nobody to speak to. So, Absolutely. so it was a, it was a mm-hmm. good working relationship. Yeah. But a, a, a few years into it, I started doing workshops based upon Jim's material, a kind of a follow-up workshop, more in-depth and then after a couple of years of doing that, I taught other people to do that. And then, and then I went on to start doing keynotes and, and speaking at, at events and developing my own material. And, and it, this went on for probably 10 years. So Jim and I both were, were making, uh, you know, you know uh, doing seminars. Mm-hmm. And uh, up to about, I think we're, we were together for between eight and 10 years. I don't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. But um, I kind of veered off on my own and he went off on his own we remained close friends and and connected and um and i just started doing my own thing developing my own material and and uh, that's when i went through some transitions of, and how i learned about letting go and, mm. and it changed my whole my whole focus uh, basically mm-hmm. and so uh, when i look at my life my whole life really uh, from my early 20s on uh, has been about helping people and mm. uh, everything I do is whether it's a business or whatever I get into. I've owned, you know, health clinics and things like that. But I'll, it's all all about helping people. It's not about um, it's not about just making money. It's, mm-hmm. it's if if it's not about helping people, then I'm really not really interested. And and the job of an entrepreneur, the job of anyone 
who is make who is exchanging value is to solve people's problems that's the definition of an entrepreneur solving people's problems for money so yeah. the, the, essentially the, what you get back in in energy is money so naturally you require that in order to to be able to help more people you require to earn more money right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, the, there seems to be um, um, sometimes people see capitalists as something bad uh, not that there is such a thing as good as bad however how how are people going to feed their family if they don't have a job if um if our local supermarket doesn't make a lot of money it it won't be able to fund causes and it won't be able to pay for people's wages so essentially that that's what you're doing you're helping people solve their challenges what what advice would you give our listeners who who may be currently going through a painful emotional challenge which might be holding them back perhaps they've just been made redundant perhaps they've had a breakup perhaps they have fears or turmoils which they want to get past well uh the first step would be to um to understand that uh, you know, we all have issues. We all have things that we've dealt with in our past or are still dealing with in a lot of cases. Um, but that's that's past. It's not happening to you now. Or if it's happening to you now, it's part of it's part of uh, the past that's brought it to you now. So, for example, a woman in one of my workshops, she was probably around 50 years old. And, and she said, I could never be successful because of my father. And I mm-hmm. said, really? I said, well, how, how so? She said, well, my father told me as I was growing up, I would never amount to anything. And he abused me verbally and put me down all the time. I'd never measure up to my siblings. And, and she said, so that's the reason I can't be successful. And I said, oh, I said, so where's your father now? <laughs> and she said, well, he, he died 10 years ago. Wow. And I said, well, who's abusing you now? Mm-hmm. And she said, I, I don't understand the question. And I said, well who's abusing you now? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, you think about it for a while. So I go on about the workshop and about 10 minutes, I come back and I said, did you come up with the answer? And she said, no. I said, okay. And I went on about the workshop and in 10 minutes or so, I came back again. And she said, you mean I'm abusing me? And I said, Mm -hmm. what do you think? And she said, I don't know. I said, okay, well, keep thinking about it. And I come back again in in a a little bit. And, um, and, and I said, did you, did you come up with the answer? She said, oh, my God. <laughs> she said, I'm abusing me. She said, I'm the one carrying that around. He's gone. I'm still living that life. Mm-hmm. And that's the first thing you got to realize is, is it happened in the past. Um, now, if you're, if you're still dealing with some stuff, you know, uh, another woman that came to one of my workshops had, had – been physically abused and you could see it on her she had a she had a cracked lip where she'd been hit she had a black eye she had makeup over it she had bruises on her wrist and um and she shared uh, later that day <clears throat> i worked with her on some letting go stuff and and later that day she said my boyfriend when i left this morning uh said if you try to if you try to leave me i will kill you and she said he meant it and i said okay well let's work on let's work on you let's don't worry about him and so she had gone through this was her seventh relationship all of them abusive uh three i think it was three marriages and four where she lived with a guy and this one she lived with the guy and uh so she'd been living this for many many years mm-hmm. uh, probably at the last 25 years and and we got down to the fact that her her need for approval was so strong that that her boyfriend, who, whose need to control was very strong, mm. I said, you two are a perfect relationship. Uh, and I said, that's why you're together. You're a perfect relationship. She said, but I don't like to be beaten up. And I said, well, until you let go of your need for approval, you're going to continue to get beatings from him or somebody else. You'll mm. continue to beat yourself up. Look at it that way. You're finding somebody to beat you up. And so... We worked on her need for approval and helped her let go of that. And um, and when she went home that night, she said, I'm very scared to go home. I don't know what to do. I said, don't do anything. Just go home and see what happens. And when she got home, he had already packed up and left and uh, left a note, said, I will never be back. And and she's now, I, I, I followed her for probably 
the next three or four years. I had you know uh, notes from her and things, and um, uh, she's in a loving relationship now and no longer getting beaten. So just mm-hmm. letting go of her need for approval. So you know, look at look at what you're going through, whether it's a fear or anxiety or stress or fear of the unknown or conflict in relationships. Look at it as as programs that you have, and it's it's not really you. It's it's a part of it is a made up story. Part of it is a story that you've lived already, and then you're making up the future story based upon what you've lived already. So uh, it's it's really becoming self observant and asking yourself, is this leading me in the direction I want to go? Is there anything that's not painful or harmful? Any reason to hang on to this? Mm-hmm. And start to work on that need for approval, if that's the case. Or, you know, if you're an angry person and you've got a need to be in control, which is an underlying need for approval in itself. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Just a quick question. I was interviewing um, a guest last week, um, Mike Goody, um, a four-times gold medalist and silver medalist from the Invictus Games. Um and um, he was telling us about his challenges from post-traumatic stress. He had suffered, uh, he, he, he lost a leg um, after being injured um, when he was in the military. What kind of things or advice could, could you give perhaps people who suffer from post-traumatic stress? Well, that, that's the same thing. I. I've had this, I've worked with quite a few people uh, mm-hmm. with this issue, mm-hmm. and um, um, one was probably the most extreme was um, a fellow that was basically a kind of a conscientious objector to uh, to military and, and being in war, so he joined the, um, the Coast Guard, mm-hmm. and then they found out that he had a 12th degree black belt in karate. <laughs> And they drafted him into the Marines, Special Forces, and he was chosen as one to go behind enemy lines, uh, hand-to-hand combat, go into their camps and things like that, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, which was pretty terrifying. But he ended up killing quite a few people hand-to-hand. And he said, every time I close my eyes, I see their faces. And when he came back from – this was in Vietnam – when he came back from Vietnam – uh, he he went into the hills. didn't didn't see a human being for twelve years. Just lived lived in the woods for twelve years, and you know again it's it's uh, the the trapped energy of the feeling that you have when when these things take place is what's controlling your life. Um, you know you you see it in uh, in our uh, military uh, people. You know when when they have this uh, post traumatic uh, stress. And, um, and again, it's, it's no different than anything else. It's just, it's, it's just different experiences. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, could, you could be abused by one, one experience from your parents. You could be abused by another experience being in war. Um, but it, you trap that energy inside. So, again, it's becoming observant and realizing that that's not you. It's an experience that you've had. And, and walk through that process of letting go and... Um, and and start to relieve some of that because everything is interconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have inside our brains, we have pathways called dendrites, and these dendrites are memory channels. And when you're when you see something for the first time, let's say as a child, you look up in the in the sky and you see an airplane, and you point at it, but you don't know what it is. And the parent goes, an "Airplane," and the next time you see it, you point at it again. The parent says, airplane. The third time you see it, you point at it and you go, airplane. And then after a while, you know it's an airplane. You don't think anything about it. But you've got those memory channels about that airplane. Pretty soon, you, you can tell the difference between a single engine and a two engine and a jet and a you know, supersonic or whatever, a fighter jet. You know, So mm-hmm. uh, all of these are in that same memory channel. So when you start to think about airplane, you drop on all of that past programming again. Uh, so you've got to be observant and realize that that's just energy built up inside you from those experiences. And when you work on letting that go, um, through self-observation and, and breath, um, you'll weaken its hold on it. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like a, if you, if you take a path through a field every day, you wore that, you wear that path down to where right. that, that's the path you take. Mm-hmm. 
and and because that's the path you've lived. But when you decide to take a new path, it's a little bit scary because right. you know it's tall grass and there might be snakes and mountain lions or whatever in that tall grass, and so you hesitate to do that. But the only way to get off of that path you've been on is to make choices to get on a different path, and a lot of that is letting go. Mm-hmm. That's that's fascinating. I was just wondering, um, how is it possible that let's say people such as Oprah Winfrey? I think I was reading. I don't read the news, although I came across it in the Success Journal. They still have challenges with wanting to be accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, haven't they been to you yet? <laughs> well, order- she hasn't. She hasn't. <laughs> and I would love to. I would love to work with her because mm. uh, I think I could help her a lot. Uh, Absolutely. And you know, she she battles with with weight and mm. and other things, and um, and a lot of that is. I had one one woman that uh, that weighed over uh, almost four hundred pounds, about well three hundred and some pounds, and. Um, in six months, she lost almost 200 pounds just from letting go. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> so it, it that those things we carry around. But you know our upbringing. She didn't have a great upbringing. Uh, I don't know the details of it, but uh, you know when you don't have a great upbringing, you you, you feel like you need approval from mm. from somebody, from something, from the mm-hmm. world, for from your for yourself. You know, and that need for approval can weigh heavy on you, uh, both in weight and and in um, you know emotional issues that you have to deal with. Mm. You've achieved so much, Jim, in your life. What's still left on Jim Britt's bucket list? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't really have a bucket list. Mm. Um, my wife is always asking me, "What's on your bucket list?" And, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know. I kind of live day to day. I don't. I don't really think about uh, what I what I haven't done yet. I mean, there's a lot of things I haven't done, but there's a lot of things I have done. And probably if I compared my life to most people, I probably lived 10 lifetimes, you know, in some mm-hmm. ways from experiences mm-hmm. I've had. So, um, so my bucket list, um, I, I don't know. I just kind of go day to day and I think of new projects that I could do to, uh, to help people and, you know, think of places I want to go and and uh, spend time with family and that type of thing. So, um, I don't, you know, I don't want to jump out of an airplane. I don't want to climb Mount <laughs> Everest. I don't want, you know. <laughs> um, you, you live in the moment, which I think is is actually the best way to live. That way, we're not in the past or in the future. You mentioned actually that you just completed a book uh, about your six sons. What what's the name of the book, if we may ask? Well, it's not out yet, but right. it's, I think the name, the working title, which I think will be the, the title, is what I've learned from my six sons. Wow. And it's it's kind of a sequel to uh, Rings of Truth. Oh, yes. Mm. Uh, so it's been years in, in the making, and uh, I started writing it a few years ago, and then I finished it, uh, I don't know, probably six months ago, but it's not it's not quite out yet, but it, but it will be. And wow. It's a fascinating book. It's it's great. I mean, it'd be great for anybody uh, to read, but certainly mm. for parents. And and uh, I just started looking at my sons, and as they came into the world, what I learned from from them, and uh, pretty fascinating. Um, pretty fascinating the lessons. If we really if we really listen, sometimes we think we're the teachers and they're the students, but it's actually so many times the other way around. They're the they're the teachers, and we should be the students. Wow. And um, where where can we find out more information about you and all you have to offer from books, personal business, <laughs> corporate, spiritual development? Well, uh, I have uh, I have several websites, but uh, powerofLettingGo.com that's a uh, that's a site that you can go and get get some free stuff actually, mm-hmm. and also um, my Power of Letting Go audio series uh, will be uh, listed on there as well. And then I have uh, my my personal site, which is jimbritt.com, and um, you know, all my books and audios and things are on there and, and schedules and, and what have you. Uh, so those two places primarily, and then, of course, I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that I'm keeping you here. I was just thinking in um, Rings of Truth, the character who is your guide is called Aaliyah. Mm-hmm. Now... I, I have a meaning to it because in Hebrew, it means aliyah, to rise, to, to ascend. Was that intentional? 
<laughs> no, it's pretty interesting. Uh, she's the fictional character in the book, and um, it was about into the third chapter before I decided to weave in a fictional character. So I came up with this idea of how this would work, and so I and I hadn't come up with a name yet, and so started weaving in the fictional character, and it felt like it was working really well to facilitate the reader so that they had a better experience of the of the material and the read. And um, so I'm in the uh, Sheraton Hotel at Los Angeles Airport uh, one night, and I wake up. I was trying to think of a name for. Uh, for this character and I wake up in the middle of the night it's like three in the morning and I kind of sat up in bed and I said out loud there by myself I said out loud Aaliyah wow and I reached over and I wrote it down on a, a pad of paper next to my my uh, nightstand there and woke up the next morning and and I saw the pad of paper there and I wrote that down I'm going what was that and I thought oh yeah I remember now and I kept looking at the name Aaliyah and I thought that's her name. <laughs> so I put her in, and and then I started researching the name. And um, one of the definitions I found was being of light. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 then what you said there was was uh, was kind of the same thing. So yeah. and this was this was probably into I don't remember now ch- chapter seven or eight before I came up with the name. I think um, so. After I came up with the name, it started actually feeling like I was communicating with somebody. <laughs> and, yeah. and I don't, you know, I, I don't know who or what or if it was just in my imagination, but <clears throat> it became more real than, um, than fiction uh, yeah. for me. So maybe she's not a fictional character i don't know absolutely i have to say i'm not a religious person i'm i'm a spiritual person i don't really do religion for me anyway i felt that there was a lot of control in religion however from a spiritual point of view i can understand that because i've had experiences like that and i really felt it when i was reading that book <laughs> i really understood it and and then i remembered I, I, I've, I've written two books myself, however, I, I concentrate now on screenplays. And I was thinking, wouldn't, wouldn't it make a great film, Rings of Truth? Actually, I just signed a, <clears throat> just signed a uh, contract uh, a week ago wow, for Rings of Truth to become a, a movie. Yeah. Congratulations. I've got some pretty, pretty big names working on it, so um, uh-huh. it, it looks, uh, looks pretty good, so... Uh, Fantastic! See, they're working on the screenplay now, so we'll we'll see how all that goes. Can't wait to see it. Uh, I guess they beat me to it. If they need a good <laughs> screenwriter, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I could talk with you all day. Although I know t- that time is valuable in terms of helping people, so I'll leave you with one last question before okay. you go. And I, I hope we'll have you back on the show to discuss Rings of Truth, the film. A couple of years ago, Jim, on your Twitter timeline, you asked a question, which I always wondered if you ever found an answer to. And that question was, why is it that when we tickle ourselves, it doesn't tickle? Did you ever find the answer? (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. I kind of remember (laughs) asking that question because (laughs) I thought it was kind of fascinating. But um, no, I, I haven't found the answer. Well, I think many people have not found the answer to many things in life. And from your books, from what I understood and from my, my experience, the answer really is within ourselves. So many times we, we, we look for the answer to, to life um, from perhaps from religion or from, uh, from gurus. Um, right. I'm, I'm not going to get political here. However, the, the, the answer I understand from, from your books is love. So... Could, could could you could you leave us with with, with a loving <laughs> end to this uh, conversation? Yeah, uh, you know we exist in love. Uh, ex- love doesn't exist in us. We exist in love. The, the way I see it. So when we get uh, tied up in our emotions and our ego and past programming and all of that, we step. We kind of step out of that, or we 
we feel like we're con- disconnected from it. We're still connected, but we're so caught up in our minds that we we don't feel that connection. And you know, t- to me, um, it, life only happens in the moment. It doesn't happen yesterday. It doesn't happen tomorrow. Um, we have what we have in our lives based upon what we believe about ourselves. We'll have what we have in the future based upon what we believe about ourselves today. We can't change the future. We can only change today, which will change the future at some point in the future. But uh, moment to moment is where you make changes in your life. So uh, I would just say once you've decided the life you want to live, then from that point forward, every action you take, and an action could be a thought, a belief, a feeling, an emotion, um, any of those things, every action you take is going to move you toward that or away from it. And if you want to change your life, the best I could, uh, advice I could give is decide what you want and then take actions and love it into your life. Uh, take actions toward what you'd love to have. Well, I've loved having you on the show today. And I'm just so privileged and, and honored. Thank you so, so much for joining us today, Jim. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. If this episode inspired you to live your life with purpose, why not inspire others to change their life too? by sharing this podcast with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. For more inspiring interviews, check out our website at thesuccessjourneys.com. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the Success Journeys podcast on iTunes. And please, do leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. This is Katie Napoleon-Hill sending you love and sunshine. Till next time.